Hi, welcome to Fizz Gig. I'm Wendy Althwaite and I admit to being fascinated by fizz, the taste, the tingle and most importantly, the trivia. Do join me. We'll explore the myths and the mysteries of the world's greatest sparkling wines. Full disclosure here, I produce English sparkling wine in West Sussex myself, but this podcast is not about our wine in particular or even about English sparkling wine in general although in fact this individual podcast is. But usually it's about the scintillating world of effervescence. I'll pop a cork and cast a pod on a Friday and I do hope you'll be with me. Don't forget to listen out for the pudding at the end. It's a little tidbit that, whilst not strictly on point, amuses me. Pop it in your goodie bag as a little fact to take away. So, here we go. TGI Fizz Day. And today, we're going to talk about the sparkling that's closest to my heart, English sparkling wine. As you know, I'm not entirely unbiased about this, being an English wine producer myself, but I will try my very hardest to be as objective as possible. And if I stray, at least you'll know why. So, English sparkling wine is fabulous fizz with a terribly clunky name. And it seems there's no escaping it. Various possibilities have been mooted, usually when someone's already secured the intellectual property of the proposed name for their own brand. So, Ridgeview has Merit, after Christopher Merit. Coates and Seeley has Britang, as in Britannia, but looking suspiciously like the word Champagne. Or is that Champagne? These suggestions have not generally been adopted. A few years ago, The Spectator magazine ran a competition to try and find a suitable name. Interestingly, the suggestions were often Anglo-Saxon or Latinate, such as Vinbula, a concision of wine and bubble in Latin, but it does sound a little like a skin condition. Some suggestions were French-ish, like Cru Anglais. Some were humorous, like Britpop, or, as an Australian suggested, Pomaine, and I quite liked Cork Blimey. But the most stylish in the colour and font of Chanel was the proposal Channel. Some names were patriotic Britannia, Albion, or, in deference to the Queen, Liz Fizz, because many great drinks' names are three letters, like gin or rum. And despite the custard association, Cremant Anglais was popular. In fact, there is an English Cremant, Bride Valley. But there remains no name on which we can all agree. One day, we'll have a name that trips off the tongue as easily as the fizz tingles on it. But until then, it's English sparkling wine. But at least it's not Fizzy McFizzface. In the USA, they've given up waiting for us and simply call it Brit Fizz. And perhaps that's for the best. So you'll remember from an earlier episode of FizzGig that it was the English who first invented the traditional method. They copied the cider makers and added sugar at bottling to promote secondary fermentation in the bottle. But at that time, the English hadn't grown grapes in the country since Roman times, and they just simply imported still wine from elsewhere, usually northern France. However, at last, the UK is now a wine-growing area. Before the 80s, the grapes grown were usually Germanic varieties and often hybrids because growers worried that they wouldn't be able to ripen other varieties of grapes. However, 
everything changed when some plucky Americans, Stuart and Sandy Moss, planted a vineyard at Nightember in 1988, focusing on the champagne varieties, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. Everyone thought they were nuts, but they were right. The climate was perfect for making sparkling wine, which requires cool climate ripening, retaining relatively high acidity. By the time the Mosses had returned to the USA in 2001, having sold their vineyard, they had started a new, unstoppable wine genre. English sparkling wine. So, a snapshot of the English wine industry is that there are now over 500 vineyards and 165 wineries in the UK. There are about 9,000 acres under vine, which is up 80% since 2015. So it's a veritable boom, with UK production up to about 16 million bottles in 2018, which was a fabulous year. About 70% of wine production is sparkling rather than still wine. And of that, 98 is traditional method sparkling. Although there's some Charmat method creeping in with two producers, Fitz and Flint. The grapes are usually Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, although, just like in Champagne, other varieties in the UK are permitted. Pinot Noir Précoce, Pinot Blanc and Pinot Gris. In fact, a couple of Champagne houses have already invested here. Tattinger and Pomeroy have invested in the UK. And most vineyards are in the southeast of England, Kent, Sussex and Hampshire. But there are vineyards everywhere, all the way over to the west in Cornwall and Wales, and as far north as Moulton in North Yorkshire. People have even tried to plant commercial vineyards as far north as Fife in Scotland, with limited success. But who doesn't love the sheer chutzpah of Chateau Hebrides? Just as in Champagne, they only ever talk about chalk and limestone, even though fizzgiggers know that Champagne vineyards encompass 34 different soil types, most English vineyards are planted on chalk. Ours is one of the rare ones on green sand, because green sand is rare, and some are on clay. Vines don't like waterlogged roots, though, and given that we do have the old rain shower in the UK, it's important that we have good drainage, and ideally rocks that retain and reflect heat. Viticulture in England is all about maximising heat and light. In the baking vineyards elsewhere in the world, it's all about irrigating and giving grapes some shade. There are few pests and diseases in England because there's not hundreds of years of vineyard monoculture to build up a cohort of nasties. For example, my most troublesome pet is a badger, who literally takes our lone hanging fruit and so endangers our bottom line. Most vineyards are planted into natural pasture land at a time when we now appreciate the importance of looking after our soils and nurturing our countryside. So there's no non-degradable detritus from our capital city's rubbish tips here. In England, the quality of grapes tends to be higher because of the lower yields and the enormous care in the viticulture. Most winemakers agree that good wine is made in the vineyard, not the winery. Throughout the year, vines are tended, removing bunches so that the remaining bunches ripen well, removing single leaves so that each bunch bathes in sunlight. It's literally very hands-on, and most viticulture is done by hand because it's the only way to ensure the best quality. But all this shows in the bottle, which is 
perhaps why English sparkling wines have done particularly well internationally. In fact, in the last couple of decades, England has won the international trophies for best sparkling wines 12 times more than any other country, including France. But the real reason why English sparkling wine has done so well is the climate and probably the changing climate. It's simply warmer than it once was. Since the 1980s, the UK now regularly has temperatures over 30 degrees centigrade, which helps the grapes ripen. Nevertheless, in grape terms, England has a cool and gentle climate, which allows a long, slow ripening period as the fruit slowly develops its flavours. A gentle, long ripening is better than a quick burst. And that's why a Scottish raspberry is more delicious than a raspberry grown in hotter climes. So, the English fizz style is fresh and delicate. Because of its acidity, it has amazing bone structure, which allows it to age beautifully. Although it's made in the same methodology as champagne, from the same grape varieties, on the same sort of soil, it has a distinctive cut glass accent and is instantly recognisable as English. As many of the world's wine regions warm up, the world's wine drinkers are drowning in hot, jammy, flabby wines, so the fresher style is frankly a relief. And what's more, because England is a relatively new winemaking region, there's space for winemakers to innovate, and there's some absolutely delicious experiments going on out there, which is thrilling. Winemakers from all over the world are flocking to England and I believe it's the most exciting place in the world to make wine right now. But, to put it in context, the UK remains Champagne's largest export market, and English fizz production, even in a bumper 16 million bottle a year, is only about half the production of a single Champagne house, Moët Chandon. And while it's wonderful to have more boutique artisanal producers from a quality point of view, from a marketing budget point of view, it's a disaster. So don't expect quintessential English sporting events to drop their champagne sponsor. Wimbledon has Lanson, Royal Ascot has Moëté Chandon, and Twickenham's Rugby has Bollinger. Champagne has had a century or two to build their brands. English fizz is increased its sales by 180% in the last year, whereas champagne sales are declining. So go England. Anyone for pudding? I know that he's just a fictional character and best known for ordering a vodka martini, shaken not stirred, but James Bond drank a lot of champagne and he shows very little brand loyalty. In Casino Royale, Fleming's first Bond novel, he declared... Tintinger's Blanc de Blanc Brut 1943 as probably the finest champagne in the world. But by the Moonraker film, when he drinks Don Perignon, he said that Tintinger was only a fad of mine. In the books, he sips and slurps his way through Veuve Clicquot, Krug, Pomeray and Bollinger. And Bollinger is definitely a favoured film sponsor as Daniel Craig lowers from inside the foil, but Bollinger in fact only appears in two of the 14 Fleming books, Diamonds of Forever and On Her Majesty's Secret Service. In Diamonds of Forever, Bond also stops at Scott's for dressed crab and a pint of black velvet, which, as you know, is stout and champagne. But my personal favourite, to be served in a deep champagne goblet, is, of course, the Vespa Martini. Three measures of gin, 
one of vodka, half of lile, shaken until it's ice cold and then a large slice of lemon peel added. Bond loved Vesper. And what could be more romantic than inventing a drink for someone? It's positively swoon-worthy. So there we have it, Fizzerati. We flexed our stiff upper lip to sip English elixir. I told you I might be a little bit biased. Thanks for listening. This is the last podcast of the year, but I do hope you'll join me next year when we'll tip our hat at Cap Classique, the jewel of South Africa. Until then, may your wine, like your wit, be sparkling. Merry Fizzmas! <laughs> <laughs>